Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for music that needs to be soothed and calmed down by Mavis Staples. We're going to go ahead and start with a little bit of trivia. I'm going to start out trivia this episode, and I have a trivia that's sort of related to our episode. So what I'm going to do is I am going to read you a description of a famous cameo in a music video. And your job is just tell me what was the name of the music video. So we'll go ahead and get started. All right. First one is Courtney Cox gets yanked on stage. Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. Very good. One of the most famous of the cameos. All right, here we go. Chevy Chase blows on a much smaller man. Call Me Owl by Paul Simon. Very good. All right, third one. Bob and Dave instruct on how to be real rock stars. Yola Tango Autumn Sweater. Right band, wrong song. Um, Oh, Sugar Cube. Sugar Cube. And that is... Possibly my favorite music video of all times. Young band, you're going to rock school. All right. You may, you're, you're on fire. Perfect so far. Christopher Walken flies like Peter Pan. Fatboy Slim. Mm-hmm. Is it something like Dancing on the Ceiling or something like that? I don't know the Weapon name of, of the choice. Weapon of okay. choice. I think Fatboy fat Slim is good enough. I'll give you the point. I just saw that video again last week, actually. Pretty good video. Yeah, so. absolutely. All right. Jack Black is appalled at kitchen appliance coitus. I don't know that one. That is Beck Sex Laws. Okay. Remember that video? Nope. Okay. Pretty good video. All right. You have to dig deep for this one. John Malkovic and Hugh Laurie... Dandy up and go out for some 18th century honor. I have no idea. That is Annie Lennox's Walking on Broken Glass. Okay. Never seen a video for that, I don't think. Really? I know the song. Next one. Robin Williams dances around with a really bad mustache and some culturally insensitive garb. Is it from Mrs. Doubtfire? No. Okay. Then I don't I don't think I know what it is. It is Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Oh, okay. Okay. I do remember actually seeing that one. That's the first well, the last two I didn't know at all. Um as far as the videos. I don't think I'd even seen them. But Yeah. I mean, these are pretty old. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up new ones and I knew neither the band nor the actors. <laughs> Gobbledygook to me. You have your finger on the pulse. Yep. <laughs> That's why we do a podcast about music. All right, here we go. 
Winona Ryder, Giovanni Ribisi, and John C. Riley grease up and jump off amps. Is it something like the Goo Goo Dolls or something? Nope. It's not the replacements. Getting closer. Paul Westerberg? Nope. It was the John Spencer Blues Explosion with Talking oh, really? About the Blues. Mm-hmm. That's much cooler. That's great. Yeah. Not- yeah. It's a pretty fun video. They they all dress up like a member of the band and basically do the music video as them. All right. A couple more. You're doing really well. No, I'm not, actually. I don't know if you're paying attention. I've missed like four in a row. I know. That's why, that's why I'm, I'm trying to jinx you. John Goodman does a punching bag dance at the World's Strangest Karaoke Night. Wild Wild Life by the Talking Heads? Very good, very good. All right, last one. Several stars from the WWF, Steven Spielberg, and the Bangles party on a pirate ship. With Captain Lou Albano? Yes, he was there. Cindy Lauper with Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It is Cindy Lauper. It was the Goonie song. Goonies are good enough. Yeah, the Bengals are in there. So is a bunch of people like Cindy Lauper's mom. And it was like seven minutes long, some good parts. There was also some casual racism in there. So. All right. That's it. Okay. That was, that was my uh, my cameo challenge. Did, Very good. That was fun. Did okay. Yeah. I hope everybody did maybe a little bit better than me. I got a few. You have a very weird subset of knowledge. There are things that, like, I think are most people know, and that you just have either totally deny knowing and actually know, or just don't know. I have a dearth of common knowledge. Yes. Yeah. Common sense, too. Yes. Huh? <laughs> All right, I think it's my turn for the audio trivia round, and what we will be doing for this one is very simple. I have six clips of music. And I would like for you to name the artist, the song, and the theme. And that's it. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. Listen to me, baby. Hear every word I say. No one can... Track two. playing those again at the end of the show so you get one more chance at the end but how do you think you did i've got two or three for sure all the way and a couple more guesses on artist 
So I'm I'm okay. I don't have a theme yet, but hopefully it will come to me. Sometimes at the end when I start naming them. When I made it, I thought you would get five of the artists um, and probably the songs, but... It's a lot of pressure. It is. I was expecting you to get seven of the six correct. <laughs> okay. I like those odds. Are you ready to move along into our turntable talk for this episode? I am 100% ready. Let's do it. Okay. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Reclined in a purple upholstered Shea Lounge, Prince turned on MTV with the hopes of seeing himself. Instead, he tuned into a video of an annoyed-looking Mr. Spock chauffeuring around four enticing young ladies crammed in the back seat who were wearing obscene amounts of eyeliner and gorgeously harmonizing about Liverpool. After spending some time thinking about which, or probably how many, of the girls he was going to pawn far, Prince came up with a plan for the Bangles. The trek to even get that video on NTV was an interesting tale of luck and determination. A girl group garage band focused on reinventing the sounds of the 60s spent years on the L.A. club circuit. Only one big label, Columbia Records, was interested at all. The A&R man who was thinking about signing them needed someone to vouch for them, so he dragged Bruce Springsteen to a show where they were playing at the Magic Mountain Amusement Park Amphitheater. Springsteen liked what he saw, which was enough cred for the label to sign them. The album was good, but rough around the edges. Without much national exposure, the band looked like it might not make it at all. For their second single, Going Down to Liverpool, Susanna Hoffs got an idea to ask Sir Leonard Mr. Spock Nimoy to make a cameo. Her family and the Nimoys had been friends since before a specific five-year voyage ever took place. To the band's shock, he agreed. And to his utter dismay, they didn't allow him to sing. Hoff's mom would direct the video. It would be aired in regular rotation, partially on the star power of Nimoy, which is only logical. Once Prince saw the video, he became infatuated with the Bangles, and really the whole neo-psychedelia scene that they rose from. He flew out to L.A. to see one of their shows and decided to go around and surprise the band by performing with them on the song Hero Takes a Fall. Just imagine playing and <laughs> out come Pops Prince. He did that for a Thanksgiving dinner at our family, family house. <laughs> it, was really, it was really sweet. He brought yams. Yeah, I bet he ate most of your turkey, though. Yeah, and he fucked my mom. <laughs> <laughs> the band barely knew who he was beyond When Doves Cry. Shortly after, he sent them a tape offering them to choose one of the two original songs that he had penned under the pseudonym Christopher. They chose the tune Manic Monday, which fit in perfectly with their own jangly sound. The song was originally written for the Apollonia Six, Prince's female group, but was pulled from the album at the last minute. Probably related to evil alter egos and whatnot. Prince told the band that he was cool with them just singing over his backing track, but they wisely went ahead and recorded their own version. In January 1986, Manic Monday went to number two. 
only behind the number one song in the country, Prince's Kiss. Springsteen's Blessing, Nimoy's Star Power, and Prince's Song were all integral factors in the Bangles making it big. This on top of them being a very talented, driven, and great-looking band. Their success was a complete outlier from the rest of the like-minded bands that made up L.A.'s Paisley Underground. The other bands that made the core of this sunshiny scene went down in flames, succumbing to major label meat grinders, beer commercials, band member shuffling, and their own idiosyncrasies but not before the Paisley Underground sound would resonate over all of independent music as a precursor for alt-country, jangle pop, shoegaze, freak folk, dream pop, garage revival, Brit pop, and essentially every form of melodic alternative music to follow. Not sure if we should thank them or blame them. Maybe a little of both. Paisley Underground might be the first mixtape scene. Not really a genre at all, but a collective of people who had similar tastes and influences who all happened to be in bands. The music was defined more by what it wasn't. Not punk, not singer-songwriter, not hard rock, not new romantic. It was entirely synthesized by openly combining parts of beloved sounds of the past into a fresh and forward-thinking way. The bands were composed of musicians who wore their hearts on their technicolor dream coat sleeves, with regards to their love and devotion of 60s music. However, the sounds of the individual bands varied greatly, so it makes little sense to call it a true genre. More a scene that captured shared ideals and fashion sense. As Dream Syndicate main man Steve Wynn aptly put it, we had enough in common with each other and almost nothing in common with anybody else. The closest comparison might be the Laurel Canyon scene of the late 60s and early 70s, Another loose association of musicians who all happened to live nearby in a mountainous neighborhood in the Hollywood Hills and who spent time living together, playing together, sleeping together, and getting wasted together. A creative epicenter without rules or formal hierarchy. An artificially idyllic world where you could stroll down Main Street to a country store to see Frank Zappa and Neil Young playing checkers and chewing on blades of hay. Cass Elliott, David Crosby, and Jackson Brown collecting lightning bugs in jars. Joni Mitchell and Jim Morrison dressed in overalls and fixing an old motorbike with spoons and belts. Dusty Springfield is whittling away at a spoon for Brian Wilson so he could eat his oatmeal. Don Van Vliet playing harmonica and feeding moldy bread to dead pigeons. The fancy A&R men driving by and catcalling musicians to jump in their Cadillac, make a record, and get famous, kid. And, of course, the generals and military-industrial complex leaders watching on satellite from afar as their children turn the brains of our nation's youth to mush. Down the hill, the Paisley Underground was also centered around Los Angeles, a decade later from about 1981 to 1985. It involved a wave of kids who became tired of the punk scene, which had become what it initially railed against. Stagnant music that was too concerned with maintaining status quo uniformity as the kids were getting too violent. 
Scores of kids who initially fallen in love with the thrill and DIY mindset of punk grew bored and felt disenfranchised and left behind. Many of the Paisley undergroundlings described themselves as bad punks, making music just for the sake of belonging rather than for the sake of the songs. Paisley Underground was the spirit of punk, but with a more expansive sound. They started looking inward and backward to the more gentle and pretty sounds of the 60s. But this wasn't a neo-hippie movement with romanticized political ideas and stereotypical retro wear. In fact, all the bands had gleaned what they liked most about the 60s without any concern for being true to their heroes or dedicated to the sound and fashion. The scene was anchored by four really strong but different bands. The Dream Syndicate, The Rain Parade, The Three O'Clock, and the aforementioned Bangles. Two other bands are often uttered in the same breath as these, but never with the same reverence. Those are Green on Red and The Long Riders. Outside this nucleus are countless discarded and forgotten bands that have moments of brilliance, but were nevertheless overshadowed by the top-heavy scene. Don't worry, we will get to them. Much like Laurel Canyon, the scene has a lot to do with the place and time. The gathering of kids who found each other and bonded through music, but created more through collaboration, support, and even friendly competition. The members of the bands were friends first. They all went to the same record stores, went camping together, and attended each other's barbecues. They shared venues, studio time, ideas, instruments, songs, and sometimes beds. They loved each other's music because they loved good music. It was a true camaraderie that seemed to be full of genuine positive feelings and flowers-in-their-hair happiness. All this makes for a lively scene, but it also provides the record industry with a target-rich environment to pick up the next big thing. And in the end, this descent of big money, along with the natural evolution of musicians, would end up killing this jangly utopian dream. The history of the Paisley Underground is difficult to untangle. Some of the early connective tissue seems to lie in two main short-lived lost groups, the unconscious and the suspects. The Unconscious was a band that had both Susanna Hoffs and David Roback, who grew up just a few blocks from each other in Brentwood. Hoffs and Roback were a couple who, along with bass-playing brother Stephen Roback, started a band inspired by the Sex Pistols, Patti Smith, and Elvis Costello. The couple broke up and the band shortly followed suit. And the split set into motion both the Bangles and the Rain Parade while providing an important link between these two seminal bands. 400 miles north, the UC Davis College radio station, KDVS, was turning out to be a breeding ground for cult bands. Among the stacks of beloved garage, psychedelic, country, power-pop, and proto-punk records, Steve Wynn met Kendra Smith and formed a band called The Suspects. Filling out the group was Russ Tolman and Gavin Blair, who would go on to form the darkly psychedelic True West. The Suspects put out one shimmering single, talking loud. That band didn't last long, and Wynn moved on to form 15 Minutes, as in Warhol's 15 Minutes. 
with another UC Davis DJ, Scott Miller, who was in Alternative Learning and would be in Game Theory shortly after that. Guy Kaiser, frontman for the art-punk band Thin White Rope, was also spinning records at the time. Keeping up with all of this is going to require a string theory crazy wall. Get some yarn. Needless to say, band swapping was a common practice. The scene was basically a key party. Wynn headed down to L.A., as did several of the other Davis bands. At the same time, a kid named Michael Quercio was working on a new sound that was pure bright psychedelia, but played at a furious punk speed. His band was called Salvation Army. Until the real Salvation Army, Goons, didn't care for the infringement, so he would change his band name to The Before Three O'Clock, and eventually just Three O'Clock. At the same time, Dan Stewart relocated to Los Angeles from Tucson, bringing his desert-fried garage psych outfit, The Surfers, with him. They changed their name to Green on Red at the suggestion of then-booking agent Belinda Carlisle, as there already was a surf-punk band imaginatively called The Surfers. Finally, there was a Kentuckian, Sid Griffin, who'd been playing in punk and garage bands, making a name for himself on the live scene with a band called The Unclaimed. As that band went by the wayside, he met guitarist Stephen McCarthy, who allowed him to embrace his love of cosmic country heroes, particularly The Birds and all the eggs that fell out of that nest, Graham Parsons, Gene Clark, and Clarence White. They rebranded themselves as the Long Riders. For a brief moment, Steve Wynn also jumped into that group, but decided that he needed to stick with him being the big gun in Dream Syndicate rather than compete with Griffin. And thus, the core of the yet unnamed and undefined Paisley Underground converged in L.A. in 1981. Skipping ahead just a bit, while there are many missing pieces of the story, there is one universally agreed upon truth. This truth being that it was the three o'clock's Michael Quercio who coined the term Paisley Underground. How he got there is a little foggy and honestly, not very interesting. So we'll go with the story that he was playing with his friend in another band who was wearing a red Paisley pattern dress and he ad-libbed the lyrics. The rehearsal was taped and the line was played back for Quercio. They used the name for a casual 60s record listening group they formed. Eventually, an interviewer from the L.A. Weekly at the Rock and Roll Denny's asked him to describe a show where the Three O'Clock, the Bangles, and Rain Parade were on the same bill. Out came Paisley Underground. The interviewer ran with it, and other music writers picked up on it, and it spread. Like rust. The inadvertently christened term was maligned by the bands under its umbrella for making the scene sound too flowery and romantic. Worse, it painted an unfair portrait of the scene being musically and stylistically uniform. Dan Stewart of Green on Red makes a point to refer to it as the Paisley Underwear. Ooh, good one. At least his lyrics are clever. (laughs) Some bands felt like the name likened them to some of the drug-addled movements of the past. There certainly was partying, but drugs did not seem to be a mainstay of the scene. Matt Puichi of Rain Parade spoke of this issue. Acids like Cleveland. Once you've been there 20 times, you don't want to go back. All that said, most bands acknowledge it was sort of nice to have an easily remembered handle to describe the scene. Please note that Highway Hi-Fi Podcast does not agree with nor condone any derogatory statements about Cleveland, Ohio. 
Back to 1981. As mentioned before, many of the kids involved in what would become the Paisley Underground Movement started in failed or forgotten punk bands. One thing they picked up on from the scene was the DIY ethic and not waiting around to get a label to put out your record. Many bands created their own small labels to start putting out music as fast as possible. Probably the first so-called Paisley Underground single was That's What You Always Say by Steve Wynn's band 15 Minutes, put out on a label he started called Down There Records. The song would later be re-recorded in 1982 for the essential album Days of Wine and Roses by Dream Syndicate. Down There would also release the earliest Green on Red piece. The Bangs, soon to be named The Bangles, formed a label called Down Kitty Records to issue their single Getting Out of Hand. Frontier Records, mostly a punk label, also put out the first Salvation Army LP and the Long Riders' first records. Rain Parade would fall in with Enigma Records for their stellar debut, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. Each band would have a successful indie album by 1984. As the band started putting out records and playing out, they became more and more friendly. A legendary 1982 4th of July camping trip to Catalina Island by members of the Core 4 groups seemed to be a springboard for the movement. Also, regular Sunday evening barbecues at the Green on Red House in East Hollywood would be time for the bands to bask in the SoCal sun, talk, drink, and play records. And just as with Laurel Canyon, many of the band members lived together or around each other. Sid Griffin remembers sharing a house with some of the Bangles, saying that he lived just blocks away from Steve Wynn, Exine Cervanka and John Doe of X, Dwight Yoakam, John Silva, who would later manage Nirvana, and a weirdo cartoonist named Matt Groening. Every interview with people involved makes these times seem like the salad days of life. Peter Case from the Plimsolls described it as, like your parents go away for the weekend, except they're gone the whole year. Perhaps the most telling evidence of this overall unity is the records themselves. In the short lifespan of the movement, there are numerous instances of guesting on Friends records and several full-on Paisley supergroup albums. They are lasting artifacts of the amazingly harmonious nature and, honestly, some of the best music of the era. The most famous of these was the Rainy Day LP, a group dreamt up by David Robach after one of the barbecues featuring members of that core four. 
The album was entirely made up of covers, mostly deep cuts, of the bands worshipped by these record-collecting friends. The Beach Boys, Big Star, Birds, Bob Dylan, possibly by way of Nico or Fairport Convention, Hendrix, Velvet Underground, and The Who. The result is stellar and gorgeous, full of classics that embody the spirit of the bands. Here's Kendra Smith singing Buffalo Springfield's Flying on the Ground is Wrong. Is my world not falling down? I'm in pieces on the ground and my eyes aren't open and I'm standing on my knees. But if crying and holding on and flying on the ground is wrong A second notorious collaboration album was Danny and Dusty's Lost Weekend, a rollicking, free-spirited country album that was cobbled together after a few beer-fueled Monday night football viewings by Steve Dusty Wynn and Green on Red's Dan Stewart. Both guys seemed to be blowing off steam from the pressures of trying to make it. They called up friends who they knew were more into the country psych stuff, mostly the guys from Green on Red and The Long Riders, and spent a couple days recording at a seedy place in Koreatown. The result was a loose, fun country record that sounds like what it was, lovingly raucous barroom tunes that don't take themselves too seriously. As Stewart quipped, it ain't the basement tapes. Danny and Dusty played a couple live shows as well that were so wild, it apparently made the album seem sober as a judge. Here's Song for a Dreamer. And a much lesser-known album, partially because it landed in 1988, at the tail end of the movement was Chris Cacava's and the Junkyard Love. Cacava's had played keyboards in Green on Red, but had separated to make his own way. Recording for upstart label Heyday Records, the album was taking a long time to complete. Steve Wynn agreed to come aboard to produce the record for his old pal, charging just a single bottle of Jim Beam. The album featured members of Green on Red, Opal, Rain Parade, and The Long Riders, and is simply amazing, raw, driving music that sounds like an upset Neil Young and Crazy Horse conducting their toy trains into head-on collisions. When I said goodbye, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I had too much to think, but now it's going to my head. Now I'm all 
and that is not to mention all the songs that were written about each other. The Bengals' reflection on the dangers of arrogance, Hero Takes a Fall, was allegedly written about Steve Wynn. Rain Parade's Look What She's Done to Your Mind was the band writing about David Roebuck crying after seeing Hoffs playing in a band just a few days after their breakup. Also, The Three O'Clock's The Girl With The Guitar Says Oh Yeah was also about the much-desired bangle. Sometimes the grass too short to understand Throw down your hands Come into the land All seals blowing Girl with the guitar says Beyond just loving life and apparently loving each other, the bands were working hard and people started taking notice. When Dream Syndicate released their debut LP, it garnered critical acclaim. Far from being derivative, nothing had ever sounded quite like it, and it immediately caught the attention of music journalists, indie magazines, and fanzines like Bucket Full of Brains. College radio started filling the airwaves with shiny songs from L.A. The scene started getting a next-big-thing vibe, bringing forth more attention, more labels, more bands looking for a like-minded cohort. And while bands were starting to get courted by bigger labels and drawing more national attention, there was also an interesting thing happening in Europe. In London, there was a small record shop called Zippo Records, run by Peter Flanagan. Flanagan set up the shop for the sole purpose of putting out music that he liked, stuff like Rocky Erickson and the MC5. Unsurprisingly, he also loved the sound that was coming from the West Coast. He morphed his shop to also become a distributory label, part of Demon Records. He was able to get rights to start releasing records in Europe by Paisley bands and their ilk like Green on Red, Rain Parade, Dream Syndicate, Long Riders, True West, and Giant Sand. This one passion project was responsible for getting this music out all over Europe, creating more rabid fan bases than anywhere else besides L.A. Bands like the Longriders would actually get signed to Island in Europe. Sid Griffin recounts stories of headlining a festival in London with over 10,000 adoring fans and then coming home to play for 200 at a half-filled club in Los Angeles. It really seemed like they embraced this sound, this retro sound, because it really led to a lot of those homegrown bands developing that, and that's where you get like the shoegaze and stuff like that coming right after this. Can you think of any other movements like that that were so popular overseas, but where they're from, they just was not nearly as popular? A lot of blues in the 60s or late 50s was not popular in America, but it was huge in England, and it launched... The British Invasion. Many of these bands were huge over there mm -hmm. and just couldn't break through here. 
Nonetheless, all six bands got a crack at the big time. Of course, the Bengals were the first to make the jump to Columbia in 1984, and they walked like a, well, you know, all the way to the top. Shortly after, both the Long Riders and Raid Parade were on island. Dream Syndicate moved on from the Slash subsidiary to put out their second full-length, Medicine Show, on A&M. Green on Red also upgraded from Slash to Mercury Records in 1986. The Three O'Clock probably have the most interesting trajectory. Moving from Frontier, they signed with IRS and even started getting some airplay on MTV with their song, Her Head's Revolving. Not a cover of a Rick James tribute song for Linda Blair. And guess who was tuned in late one night? Prince, never one known for restraint, was totally intrigued but with this neo-psychedelic scene and forced Warner Brothers to let him create a subsidiary label called Paisley Park. He was allowed to give into his more opulent obsession and released a pseudo-psychedelic record around the world in a day. The Purple One saw the three o'clock and was impressed enough to send a minion down to an L.A. show and eventually signed the band to Paisley Park. The guys got working on the album, which would eventually be called Vermilion. The band truly hoped that Prince might come record with them in the studio, but it never happened, though he did let them record one of his songs, Neon Telephone. In fact, they only met him one time, at an after-party in Minneapolis. Michael Quercio tells the story that he boarded a rented minibus to take him to the party, and he saw that he was riding with George Clinton, Mavis Staples, Wendy and Lisa and Apollonia. Everyone stared at him, and he sheepishly took a seat while the rest of the passengers remained quiet. Eventually, Mavis came over and sat next to him put her hand sweetly on his leg, and said, Who are you, honey? Soon after, Prince seemed to move his attentions to less swirly aesthetics, and his interest in the Paisley Underground was gone as quick as it came. Sadly, the small amounts of success on major labels really didn't match up with the talent or the reputations of the bands. Eventually, the bands were more on the road, and the cooperative and passionate spirits dissipated. Each of the bands saw their friends, the Bangles, and their hairstyles getting bigger than life. None of the bands expected to ride their coattails exactly, but they all seemed to think that they could at least draft behind their significant mudflaps. But it never came. And the group seemed more eager to distance themselves from the Paisley Underground brand, which, by the end, was more of a liability than an asset. The hype slowly grinding into the band's potential development with each band expecting bigger things to be happening for them. Records, radio play, and touring all happened, but none of the bands achieved anything close to becoming a household name. Well, that is not entirely true. The Long Riders, who as we mentioned before were fairly huge in Europe, were sorely disappointed in their level of fame in the States. They had a number one college radio hit with looking for Lewis and Clark, but were getting no mainstream radio play. To fill the gap and make some good scratch, they decided to do a commercial for Miller Lite. I was younger, days gone by. I felt like my limit was an open sky. We're 
trying to make, make music with integrity instead of music that just lasts uh, six months. Our records certainly don't need to be played backwards to anyone to understand what's going on. Now coast to coast and town to town, do what you got and our work is around. What could be better than to be right here when you say what you mean? Miller's up here, Miller's made the American way. It's what you do and it's what you say when you be music because that's what we do best you know if we were better carpenters we'd, we'd build houses from an advertising perspective the commercial was a huge success and saturated tv screens during march madness in 1986 well hearing ad nauseum a band talk about their fierce independent music on a heavily rotated beer commercial didn't sit well with pretty much every other musician the long riders were labeled sellouts called out by Peter Buck in an interview, ripped in an article by Dave Marsh, and mercilessly mocked by their pals, Green on Red. Worse, Griffin says that in three weeks the commercial killed the small amount of momentum their record was getting in the U.S. The Longriders didn't last long after Miller time. But who does? The other bands didn't have as nearly a public demise. The Rain Parade split first, mostly from the stress of having three really talented songwriters. The Three O'Clock called it when their Paisley Park record went nowhere. Quercio would end up in game theory and then start permanent green light and Jupiter effect in the 90s. Neither the Dream Syndicate nor the Bangles made it out of the 80s. Steve Wynn seemed to just be interested in taking different directions and had a great solo career. The Bangles succumbed to in-band jealousy as Hoffs got more and more attention despite an evenly distributed songwriting and singing duties. Green on Red, sort of an outlier from the group anyway, was the only band to make it into the 90s. Though there may be some bitterness about the major label debacles and regret that there wasn't a stronger push to remain independent, most of the bands seem perfectly content with how it all turned out, cherished their time as cohorts, and genuinely grateful for the ride. Many of the players acted as a link between the earliest parts of American underground music and the indie rock onslaught that would come in the 90s. There was a clear passion for music which carried these artists to fruitful and interesting careers, though not one of stadiums, limos, and platinum records. Not ever entirely forgotten, the six Paisley Underground bands have had a minor renaissance as of late. The Three O'Clock played Coachella in 2013, and then there were some shows with the Bangles, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade, and the Three O'Clock bands on stage together. This led to an album called Three by Four that had the bands covering each other's songs, which is worth a listen. The Longriders and Dream Syndicate have put out records of new material in the past few years. Like always, the vibe is fun and the music is great with these reunions and comebacks. However, we need to head back to the 80s to revisit what was left behind. In the wake of all scenes, there's always a scattering of bands that weren't even big enough at the time to warrant much interest. The Paisley Underground seemed, in particular, to be laser-focused on the six bands we've been discussing. Unfortunately, draining some needed press and respect for the smaller acts that had similar sound, talent, and mindsets. The remainder of this episode, we are going to focus on the lesser-known but equally fun bands around the same scene. Since Paisley Underground wasn't really a genre, it makes it a little hard to draw the line between who should count and 
who is a different thing altogether. Complicating the matter is that there was a lot of crossover with other sort of subgenres like Garage Revival and Desert Rock, not to mention several bands lumped in the scene who weren't from L.A. at all. There was a shared aesthetic and ethos, and the bands often played to the same crowds, but the sound is a little bit different. Of course, that was the case for most of Paisley. So rather than worry too much about classification, we're going to group together some bands that are at least tangentially related to the scene and are definitely worth hearing. Here goes nothing. Maybe the most prominent, though conspicuously invisible person in the entire Paisley underground is David Robach. For most people who have heard of Robach, it's probably because he recently passed away. As discussed earlier, Robach was first in a band in L.A. with his brother and Susanna Hoffs. That band split into the Bangles, obviously, and the David Robach-fronted band Rain Parade. After Rain Parade's one album, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip, Robach was getting restless. He was beginning to venture into new soundscapes, as heard most clearly in the Rain Parade's Carolyn song. This sound would end up being an early prototype of the Mazzy Star sound. Rain Parade continued on, but Robach wanted to move to a different sound, and he ended up putting together the Rainy Day album. Robach's music on the Rainy Day record was becoming more ethereal and confident. His music had combinations of surf, psych, country, and was also showing signs of an almost film noir quality. The most valuable thing this band did was to introduce Robach and Kendra Smith. The two realized that they worked together really well, as heard most clearly on the cover of Big Star's Holocaust. Smith and Robach formed a band called Clay Allison, but that name was quickly changed to Opal after Sid Barrett's album. Smith's Nico-like vocals complemented Robach's new sound really well. The band released one album and two EPs during their existence from 1984 to 87. The sound had grown away from Rain Parade completely and was its own unique style, like a Graham Parsons-influenced cocktail twins with an articulate singer as heard here on their song, She's a Diamond, from their lone album, Happy Nightmare Baby. There's a diamond 
During the middle of a European tour with Jesus and Mary Chain, Smith abruptly quit the band. As a little more background on Kendra Smith and her stick she had been the original bassist for Dream Syndicate and left that band also abruptly because she wanted to have more input beyond just keeping time. Dream Syndicate was Steve Wynn's vision, and though Smith loves the band even still and the music, it was time for her to do more. Smith exited Opal because the aesthetic that she and Robach shared had veered in completely different directions, and Smith, yet again, left a band while it was at a breakout stage. She said later that this was intentional, that she wanted to leave while the music was at its most vital and not wait too long for that magic to be lost and degraded. Smith released a couple of solo albums and retreated into the woods, literally, where she quietly spent the next couple decades living off the land completely. When Smith left Opal, Robach finished the tour using backup singer Hope Sandoval in her place. After the tour, the band's name was changed to Mazzy Star, and I think we all know how that ended. We were talking earlier about the string theory, crazy wall, you know, conspiracy with all the lines between people. Yeah. I think you could make a case that uh, all the lines, or at least a lot of them, pointed to Robach. He really was all over the place. Yeah, he is Kevin Spacey in Seven. (laughs) Or he is Kaiser Sose, but still Kevin Spacey. In 1983, about 90 miles north of Davis in Chico, California... A three-piece band formed that matched Jangle for Jangle, the light psychedelics of the Paisley sound that was taking shape just south. The band was formed by guitarist and singer Cole Marquis, drummer Michael Cloward, and bassist Barbara Manning. Marquis and Manning were a couple, which means, unless you're in Yola Tango, that there's a shelf life for your band. The couple and the band split up in 1986, but the sound of the 28th day was influenced by most of the same bands as the rest of the scene, but they also outed Krautrock and a clear Flying Nun influence into their music as well. Flying Nun, as an unfairly short overview, is a New Zealand record label that had a cadre of unbelievable talented bands and musicians that include, but are in no way limited to, The Tall Dwarves, The Clean, The Chills, The Renderers, David Kilgore, and Chris Knox. There probably will be an entire episode devoted to Flying Nun and the infectious and lovable music they released. Anyways, back to the 28th day. Here's their song, Burn Sight. Most of the band's material was neither sung nor written by Manning, as that song was, but I can't keep myself from playing Barbara Manning songs at any time and every opportunity. Manning continued on playing in the early indie groups World of Pooh and then the SF Seals, as well as releasing wonderful solo albums. If you're unfamiliar with her music, you owe it to yourself to rectify that immediately. 28th Day wasn't immune to Paisley Incest, having their self-titled EP from 85 produced by True West Russ Tolman. 
In later years, Manning would work with Paisley Underground outlier Pat Thomas, who produced a lot of the Paisley albums and has been essential in having reissues available from many of the bands. L.A.'s The Plimsolls were a band that had the sound before there was even a scene. Peter Case, who'd previously been in the new wave band The Nerves, left that band and formed The Plimsolls in 1978. They released their first EP in 1980 and albums in 81 and 83 before breaking up. In 83, they had a minor hit single with the effervescently brilliant Million Miles Away, which was featured on the Valley Girl soundtrack. The band wrote pub rock Paisley power pop and did it as well as anybody and better than most of the other Paisley underground bands. And as far as songwriters from the Paisley scene go, Peter Case is right up there with Steve Wynn and Barbara Manning as one of the absolute best. I think if you were going to add a seventh to the core six that could really fill out the sound, the Plimsolls might be that seventh. They truly fit in, but every band seems to have their own kind of subgenre they bring to it the three o'clock hat were kind of like the monkeys or the early bgs and you know dream syndicate was kind of that velvet underground but the plimsolls were kind of like that pub rock you know brinsley schwartz yes yes that kind of snarling fun upbeat it's weird it's like everybody just decided that these four bands plus these two other ones are kind of the scene and everybody else was kind of cut out from it yeah, they had blinders on for any of the other bands were that were at least as good and really fit. And sounds like, based on what we talked about earlier, they were just as friendly. Peter Case was involved in that scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's strange how history has kind of looked back on that. and A shame, really, but that's why we do this, I guess. Frontman Falling James Moreland was already notorious in the L.A. punk scene for his chaotic cross-dressing onstage antics when he formed the Leaving Trains. Departing a band called the Downers with David Robach and John Hoffs, brother of Susanna, the Leaving Trains brought a restrained cosmic country vibe to the snotty punk that was rampant in L.A. They eventually signed with SST, and following James, briefly married Courtney Love. Mark Lanigan cites their first record, Well Down Blue Highway, as hugely influential on his whiskey soap career. Here's a desert noir track called Creeping Coastlines of Light. Prime Movers hailed from Sierra Madre and brought a post-punk edge with them as they got fairly big on the L.A. scene. They so impressed former Fairpoint conventioner Ian Matthews that he signed them to Island while they were scooping up Paisley bands 
toured the UK supporting Big Country, and had a handful of releases before Island let them go as quick as they were signed. A bit tired of the label shuffling, the core of the group put itself in what was called a self-induced musical witness protection program, and ended up forming the most famous of all the Led Zeppelin reggae groups as fronted by an Elvis impersonator, Dread Zeppelin. Here's an early cut called Museum. Speaking of moving on to greater fame with a head full of nappy hair, the band called the Flower Quartet featured Eric Avery, who ended up founding Jane's Addiction with Perry Farrell. Couldn't find any of their music, though. (laughs) The Point, named after the Nielsen children's record, were yet another story of Paisley rising tide raising all ships, but also leaving a ton of wreckage when it subsided. Bright and cheery, it's not too far off from a straight-edge HR Puffin Stuff track. Here's Magic Circle. Far trippier than many of their peers, The Eyes of Mine released a single LP called Tales of the Turquoise Umbrella. Clearly someone spent too much time watching Yellow Submarine. Here's Dream Life. Top San Franciscans, the flying color, made no attempt to hide their love of the Fab Four. I guess no one did back then. Formed by Hector Penalosa, who previously was the bass player in the cult Mexican Ramones band The Zeros, the sound has that fantastically timeless jangle and crystal clear harmony. This was their 1985 single, Dear Friend. Cause I've been down so long before Where it's hard to let your feet 
with quirky and esoteric songs that brought in elements and instruments from all over la's the balancing act were essentially a vehicle for jeff davis's quality songwriting signed to irs records in the find the next rem sweepstakes the band was getting more and more popular but never broke through here's a pleasantly unfunky version of funkadelics can you get to that from their final album We've already talked a few times about the importance that Davis, California had on the Paisley scene. The Davis scene was a bit more infatuated with the darker, grittier aspects of the 60s. Think Velvets more than the Monkees. Other than Steve Wynn, Russ Tolman's True West is a true flag bearer from the city. True West was formed after the suspects parted ways. Their strength lies in the guitar work of Tolman and Richard McGrath, backing the rugged, Sid Barrett-esque impassioned pleas of singer Gavin Blair. After reaching some notoriety with their debut single, Lucifer Sam, which we'll hear in a moment, their first EP, co-produced by Wynn, caught the attention of Tom Verlaine, who had them record demos for EMI. Drifter, their first album, was a bit more folk rock than the early dark psychedelic stuff, but a fantastic guitar folk record nonetheless. Prince, who apparently was very attuned to the scene, took a few minutes away from the ping-pong table to write them a note about how much he liked their guitar sound. Like many of the Paisley Underground bands, they were beloved in Europe as part of what was dubbed the American Invasion. This didn't translate to success in the States, and despite opening for R.E.M. on the Fables of Reconstruction tour and several brushes with major labels, the band broke up in 1985. Here is this spectacular Hollywood holiday from the debut EP. Coiled so tight, seemingly constantly ready to snap, Davis's Thin White Rope was one of the weirdest and darkest bands in the scene. Led by the surreal and angular singing of Guy Kaiser and a twin chainsaw guitar attack that harkens back to television, Thin White Rope straddled the line between Paisley and Desert Rock. Their songs are often unsettling, twisted, beautiful, and funny. Even with a somewhat hostile and idiosyncratic sound, they should have been much bigger in 80s American underground. Here's a song called Down in the Desert from their first record. Uh. 
The game theory stands out amongst other bands in the scene for being incredibly forward-thinking while steeped in the beauty and fragility of 60s music. Think Devo covering Big Star. The ultimate cult band led by Scott Miller, the style is both very eccentric but immediately capturing. The lyrics are smart, maybe too smart, complete with Star Trek and James Joyce references. Not at the same time, unfortunately. But still, smack of lovelorn frustration and outsider isolation. The hooks are catchy and cold. The production has a slight slant that keeps the listener intrigued. The band put out a great run of records in the 80s before transitioning to become the Loud Family. We'll play a full song from their first record in a minute, but here's Erica's word from 1985's Big Shot Chronicles, produced by Mitch Easter, who declared recording them as the most effortless experience he has had in his studio. So eat it, Stipe. Wednesday Week is a fantastic band that used stripped-down power pop. Formed by sisters Christy and Kelly Callan, they actually were in a short-lived trio with Steve Wynn called Goat Deity. They eventually changed up lineups and names until they settled on Wednesday Week, named after an undertones tune, releasing an EP in 1983 and playing around the scene for years. They eventually joined up with Don Dixon, Jangle Pop super producer, and put out an album that was clearly more influenced by the Bangles. This landed them a coveted spot in the soundtrack to Slumber Party Massacre 2, with the tunes prominently featured in a scene where the unsuspecting girls pantomiming as a band shortly before getting impaled by a lunatic greaser with a drill bit guitar. Unfortunately, that might have also gutted their career. Here's the song Perspective from their debut EP, Betsy's House. I know this is a bit off topic, but which of the Slumber Party Massacre is your favorite? Which which sequel is your favorite of the Slumber Party Massacre? Oh, I can't use the original because the original I, I like quite a bit. I would say four. Yeah. yeah. Slumber Party Massacre for picnic night in the graveyard. <laughs> you, th- you think they just stop having slumber parties, you know? The one virgin who survives just keeps having all these whores over and they keep getting killed <laughs> the popolopes what a dumb name 
came along at the end of the scene. Drawing on the quirky rhythms and freeform guitar wailings that put the Davis scene on the map, they never managed to find much success, probably because of their dumb name. <laughs> but they did have a couple solid records produced by Russ Tolman. Here's Southern Mind from their first record, An Adder's Tale. There's a lot of names out there. The Popolopus is just not. There are a, a lot of great names to choose from. And after they picked that, there are still exactly as many great names to choose from. <laughs> there, might, there might even be more. There might. <laughs> a little farther north, a band called the Green Pajamas was fruitlessly trying to expand the Paisley Underground Sound to the Pacific Northwest. Apparently, constant gloom and rain doesn't work as well as sunshiny glamour to start a scene. Nonetheless, the band put out a homemade cassette called Summer of Lust in 1984 and had a minor college radio hit with the song Kim the Waitress. They were described as a band that had two kaleidoscopes side by side and were using them as binoculars to see the future of rock and roll. The band ended up putting out a Jandek-esque 33 albums from 1984 to 2014. Here's a great track called If I Lived in a Picture. records and i haven't heard of a single one of them not that i've heard of every record but they put out 33 you'd think just the percentage wise yeah i've worked in a few record stores you would think i would have seen one of them nope though the band naked prey hails from tucson they often get lumped in with the paisley scene the band's founders were van christian and david seeger formerly of Green on Red and Giant Sand, respectively. Their dark country rock stylings with psychedelic freakout guitar bursts would become a major part of the desert rock sound that came out of Arizona around that time. Their first record was produced by Dan Stewart and released on Winds Down There label, before they started releasing stuff on Frontier and Zippo. Their greatest side note is that the track, The Story Never Ends, from the 1984 debut, was used on an episode of Miami Vice. The perfect soundtrack for Crockett and Tubbs needing to crack a case by visiting a sex bar. A different sort of Paisley Underground, if you know what I mean. If I really had you, I no longer would roam. That's why it hurts. It's raining down deep in my soul. 
I think there was another band probably from Tucson and also part of a lot, probably some of the same guys. I know it's definitely Howie Gelb that was band of Blackie Ranchette that could have easily fit in here too. The Tucson scene, I think, gets linked up with Paisley Underground a lot because that Zippo record store slash label in the UK kind of put them together. Mm-hmm. And Green on Red. They they kind of were forced together because that Zippo released them kind of at the same time. Same kids liked them, you know. And so the Tucson and L.A. kind of got paired together with that. It really is I think kind of its own sound, but you can see why there was a comparison. Yeah. That Tucson sound sort of morphed into Calexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Changing gears a bit, we have to talk about the garage revival that was taking place concurrently with the Paisley Underground. Emerging from the punk scenes, tons of bands who loved the primitive grind of the lost 60s garage bands started forming up and playing around L.A., along with a bunch of more flowery-sounding Paisley groups. Indeed, this scene is expansive and probably worth its own turntable talk, especially centered around the Bomp, Moxie, and Dionysus record labels. We simply can't talk about all the great non-LA bands like the Chesterfield Kings, Gravedigger 5, the Morlocks, Lost Patrol, the Fuzz Tones, and the Things. We're going to hit a few of our favorites that definitely were around the scene. Firstly, we'd be remiss to not speak of the Pandoras an amazing all-female mod revivalist band with a career that's littered with drama, band splits, two versions of the band, public arguments, and most importantly, fantastic organ-driven tunes. Both versions of the band would have minor success. Sadly, the lead singer of one of them, Paula Pierce, died of an aneurysm in 91, ending the band's rollicking journey. Here's the title track from their 1984 LP, It's About Time. The Last was a huge influence on the entire scene. Their 1979 album, L.A. Explosion, was a blueprint for several Paisley bands to follow. No doubt, the Bangles and the Three O'Clock were listening. The band would break up and reform and eventually sign on SST Records. Here's a great track called She Don't Know Why She's Here from that album, L.A. Explosion. Like the last, the Unclaimed were another huge precursor to the Paisley sound. We talked a bit about them already as the band that Sid Griffin was part of before the Long Riders. 
They really brought musicianship and flair to the garage punk sound with just the right amount of bubblegum to make their music dangerously infectious. Here's Run From Home. The Telltale Hearts were a San Diego band that sounds like someone buried the seeds under the floorboards, and this is what grew out. Untold fables sound like four guys who got locked in a room for a week with nothing but some bathtub gin, the Nuggets records, and a checker set lacking any red pieces. It's fun, stupid stuff. Here's I'll Be Gone from Every Mother's Nightmare. Marshmallow Overcoat, beside having the best neo-psychedelic band name one could possibly imagine, take note, Popadopes, burst out of the Tucson with Farfisa organs and Rickenbackers and a singer who I think sounds like Ian Curtis doing his best Bobby Boris Pickett impression. They got pretty big on the college radio circuit and eventually got some airplay on 120 Minutes. Here's Suddenly Sunday. In the end, the Paisley scene was a victim of its own success. As money, labels, and music press flooded in, the glut of nostalgic-tinged bands, many of whom were amazing, ended up bottlenecking. Even still, the music ended up playing a huge role on American underground music, paving the way for bands like Husker Du, The Pixies, Lloyd Cole and the Rattlesnakes, Uncle Tupelo, The Stone Roses, My Bloody Valentine, and other bands that were integral to independent music establishing itself as a force in popular music. Sometimes the best way forward is to look back. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And who the fuck wants another disco era? 
So the records that we talked about, almost all of them, other than the ones from that big core four, are pretty inexpensive. They're easy to find, generally for less less than 10 bucks. Yeah. Probably around five for most of them. And they're really good. I was surprised how easy it was to find them and how much they were selling for. It's like these bands never even got cool. It seems like a scene that is revered, and yet nobody really bothers actually getting the music other than those main ones. Yes. It's like once you get outside that kind of circle, there's nothing. And even like in researching it, there's so much about those four bands, and there's a little bit more about the Long Riders and Green on Red, mostly because Sid Griffin is very vocal. And then all the other bands are just kind of, you just kind of kind of piece together, even though some of them are amazing and probably, in my opinion, better than some of the other bands. I think a lot of the ones we covered in the second half of that are better than anything the Three O'Clock put out. I'll say this about the Three O'Clock. That first Salvation Army LP is really cool because it's like psychedelic punk. It's very like kind of flowery punk, which is not something you hear very much. But after that, it's not it's not my favorite. It's not bad. I mean, it's all really good, but it's not bad, but it it's more middle of the pack compared to the re- a lot of the rest of these. Yeah. If I could pick my, you know, my core 6, I would definitely put the Plimsolls in there above them. Me too. Probably game theory too. I'd, I'd kick the Bangles out. If you were going to offer up a primer of albums, essential albums that don't include any of those four bands, what would be your top three most important albums to own? So I can't. I can't say Dream Syndicate, Days of Wine and Roses, or Days of Wine and Roses should be owned by everyone already. Okay. So should Emergency, Third Rail, Power Trip. I would say both those are the two essential records. So if we're taking those off the table, Green on Red, Gas Food, Lodging is awesome. That would have been my first pick, too. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I really like the Long Riders record, Native Sons, and that's the one that has a song called Ivory Tower that has Gene Clark playing on it. And that's a really great cosmic country, you know, birth of old country type record. So I would... Mm-hmm. Highly recommend that if you're into the country side of it. I've picked two. Why don't you go ahead and pick a couple? I would pick that Plimsolls album everywhere at once. And I would probably then pick Opal. They had one LP called Happy Nightmare Baby, but I might even go with instead a compilation album that came out later called Early Recordings. Yeah, I remember getting that on CD when it first came out. Just because I'd heard mm-hmm. so much about it, and it was—it's amazing. You're right; it is amazing. Yeah, I tend to like the Davis stuff more than the LA stuff, from Steve Wynn down to Game Theory and uh, True West and Thin White Rope that you said. It's a little bit more in my wheelhouse of what I would like to listen to, and there's a lot of it. I mean, those bands didn't just put out one record; they put out several records, and they're good. I think the best of all of them, even with the four, is. Dream Syndicate, and they would have been a great band regardless of where they were recording, with or without a scene. That album would have been made exactly the same way. Um, it wasn't influenced by anybody else in that scene at all, I don't think. Sounds perfect today, sounded perfect then. And we, we hinted at this as we were recording, 
But that was the album that really like put this scene on the map as far as music journalist. It was just so good and so kind of out of nowhere that people said, whoa, what is going on here? And the Bangles got the fame, but the Dream Syndicate really was the band that kind of brought people's attention. I think it's the one album that is really almost completely different stylistically from the other three big bands. Yeah. It should be uttered in the same breath as records like My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, or The Pixies, Doolittle, or, you know, post-70s classic amazingly influential albums. Yeah. But it's not. I mean, unfortunately. I think it gets a lot of acclaim, but not as much as it should. But I do think it's it's spoken of with respect, just maybe not as often as any of those. But it, yeah, it absolutely deserves a lot more. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention, too, is that Mazzy Star, who we kind of touched on, once David Roebuck got Mazzy Star and Mazzy Star had, had their, their hit... Fading to You was the big one. That kind of revitalized interest in the Paisley Underground for a while, you know, in the 90s, as did a, a box set called Children of Nuggets coming out. And it was sort of a spiritual sequel to Nuggets, but with bands, you know, from the 80s. And so those two things were kind of rejuvenated interest for a short while in the 90s. So can you think of any bands that were kind of the same style at the same time, but not in L.A.? Husker Du and the Stone Roses, those would be two that I would think of as Mm -hmm. somewhat similar enough and very interesting, both of them. What about you? I was thinking, you know, XTC, especially when they do like the Dukes of the Stratosphere, a lot of the, the soft boy stuff, but I guess that was before. I guess all that to say is like, there's a lot of bands who were doing the same thing at the same time all over the world. It just happens that this point in time got kind of famous and there was, you know, talented bands and a lot of people flocking there. And it seems like they kind of got to lay claim to a style that was probably happening all over. It's sort of a scene that is both overrated and underrated, if that makes sense. I think it does, but we kind of agree on a lot of stuff already. So (laughs) it is totally overrated because there were so many other people doing very similar things that probably as good as most of the bands in this scene, but that nobody knows about. And yeah, and underrated because like you said, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade, these are bands that aren't talked of enough. Green on Red is maybe my, not counting Dream Syndicate, that would be my favorite band. So the Plimsolls even behind them. You know, if you go out there and we'll put some of the articles we used, even the, the people in the bands don't mention anybody else. It's like they've all agreed that this is our party line that we're going to tow and these this is the bands that are important. It's so strange. Yeah. And it's not like Glam where it's Bowie and T-Rex that are the big ones because they're the ones who got famous because none of them got much more famous other than the bangles than each other. It's just sort of like history written by the winners, I suppose. It's it's great. They genuinely seem to like each other. There's not a lot of animosity in anything I read. The only animosity 
was uh, Sid Griffin being mad that he got so shit on about the Miller commercial. It was most fun to find those kind of forgotten bands. I mean, it was great to revisit like Rain Parade and Dream Syndicate. And I think those are bands that most kind of record people kind of already know of. But there's a lot of like great bands that we got to hear. And hopefully you all found some good ones, too, that you're more interested in looking into. All right. You want to keep this party rolling with uh, some songs? Of course. The first track we are going to play tonight is from that Rainy Day album that we talked about earlier, and it is called I'll Keep It With Mine. Save you any time 
that was the band Rainy Day with their Bob Dylan cover, I'll Keep It With Mine, sung by Susanna Hoffs. We've already talked so much about that band, but that was a David Robach project that he put together. He really interpreted all the songs, came up with all the music, and there are a lot of really good songs in there. That one is the opening track. I love that song. I think it's the best thing on that album, and there are a lot of great things on that album. It's a beautiful song. It, that album is probably the best example of the scene. If you just needed one album to kind of sum it all up. The version that I have was on Llama Records, which is like a subsidiary of Enigma. And the cover art, it was actually a drawing by Kendra Smith, which is very nice. My son Max even did homework writing about that cover. He had to write about a picture he saw and he wrote about this cover because it was sitting out. He liked it a lot too though he thought he could do it better. <laughs> For my first song, I'm going to play Lucifer Sam by True West.
All right, that was a cover of the Sid Barrett Pink Floyd song, Lucifer Sam, by the Davis, California band True West. This single uh, got a lot of notoriety because of how they actually did this single. It's pretty cool. So the A-side is just that cover, which is a really solid cover. kind of reminds me a little bit of Husker Du's Eight Miles High, where it kind of takes the original and cranks it up a few notches. It's not as good as that song, but that song's one of my favorite songs, but I love this one too. And so why people kind of went gaga over it is because they had this Lucifer Sam on the A side and the B side was the exact reverse. The label was inversed. The song is the song played in reverse. And so it's like a, it's like a complete duplicate, but in reverse on the B side, which is a really kind of fun premise that I hadn't haven't seen and people really liked it. So to kind of explain what we're going to mean, I'm going to play play a little bit of the clip of the B-side which is Lucifer Sam which comes out as Moss Refa Salu, I guess. Yeah, here it is backwards. Originally, that came out in 1982. It was not on a label. They just kind of self-published it. I have a reissue. Don't know when it's from. From Skyclad Records. And for my second song, I'm going to play Bad Day at UCLA by Game Theory.
Okay, that was Bad Day at UCLA from Game Theory's first record, Blaze of Glory, that also came out on in 1982 on their label, Rational Records. We talked a lot about Game Theory, so I'm not going to cover everything. Alternate learning kind of went down, and they, the Scott Miller, who was the, the lead guy of Game Theory, basically recorded this record on a shoestring budget. He recorded a lot of it in his mom's house in his old room. And um, they couldn't afford both a record and cover. So what they did is they pressed the record and then they gave it out in plastic bags with photocopied album art pasted on it. So (laughs) it made the album um, really noticeable. And so a lot of people kind of picked it up. But apparently record stores absolutely hated it. They said it was the worst thing to stock and confused people and stuff like that. I've got a um, reissue that came out in 2014 by Omnivore Records. And they it's clearly a passion project. They really love this album. Um, and it came out shortly after Scott Miller died. But it is a really cool record. I could have picked any song from it i love i love it all it's one of those records i would have mentioned before but i knew i was going to talk about it so i didn't want to go on too much about it but it's really cool it's not quite as put together as some of their later stuff it's a little bit more synthy and rough around the edges it's somewhere between like a pop album and an experimental one and that's something that franklin bruno who we talked about last episode he uh, was writing about it for i think pitchfork and he said, sometimes listening to it, it causes us to listen whether you're hearing songs at all. That's an interesting thing for a very poppy album, but there's some truth to it. So I would recommend that one too, Blaze of Glory by Game Theory, if you want to just check out a, a cool, different sort of record. I like that one. I like that one better than their other albums. It seems like their other ones get more acclaim, but I like that one. I would say their other records, they are putting it together more for the wider audience. And that's why they, you know, work with Mitch Easter and stuff. And they, I think REM, if you probably gather that, if we haven't said it directly, is REM and their instant success really shaped a lot of how record labels approach these bands. And that's a good thing and a bad thing because it made record labels sign them and give them a chance, but it also made them want to have a lot of REM-like stuff. There could probably be an entire turntable talk about the next REM bands. There are a lot of them, a lot of really good ones too. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, there's a lot worse bands to copy than REM, but definitely the record labels were looking for those type of bands. Yeah. And for our last song of the episode, this is a song called Golden Gate Park, and it is by... The Catheads.
All right, that was Golden Gate Park by a band called The Catheads off of their album, Hubba, put out on Restless Records in 1987. The Catheads were a San Francisco band that formed around 1985, and they, to me, sort of sound like the bridge between the Paisley Underground and Camper Van Beethoven. Mm. They've got a lot of similar qualities to both, where they have sort of a jangle pop sound to them at times, but then they also have kind of a country sound with influences from all over the world sometimes. And this first album, Hubba, was actually produced by the Rain Parade's Matt Piucci. And their second album was produced by David Lowry. And I first heard this song probably around the time it came out. I was at my brother's apartment and it was on and I asked said who who is this and it was the Golden Gate Park song and he said it's the Catheads and sort of put that <laughs> away hadn't thought about it until maybe four or five months ago and all of a sudden it just popped in my head the Catheads I want to get that album so I found it on Discogs for a dollar and I got it pretty good album I think the whole thing is really fun it's not an album that would compare with something like a Dream Syndicate it's more like a Camper Van Beethoven or a Coolies, if anyone out there is familiar with them. It's just really fun and light, and everybody in the band is really talented. It's a quirky song, might be the, I would, the way I would describe it, but sometimes music like that is just the best thing to find. Sometimes it just gets so tiring to have everything be so serious, and this Paisley Underground took itself really serious. Yeah, I think Steve Wynn and David Robach were very unnecessarily serious. Yeah. And possibly pretentious. But who knows? Music was good. Yep, absolutely. Well, I guess the last thing we have to do is finish some trivia. All right. So, again, I'm going to go ahead and replay those clips. And there are six of them. And what I would like to have would be answers to them and the answers should be artist song title and finally the theme what ties the six clips together all right here we go all right track one listen to me baby hear every word i say no one can track two Those were the six clips again. Ryan, what do you think you got? 
Okay. So the first song, it's definitely Fever. I think it's the Eartha Kit version that you played before. Is that right? It is not. It's Little Willie John. Oh, that's the original version? Let's see. Yep. Yep. That's the big one. Gosh, I thought it, I thought it was a female voice, not a male voice. He had a pretty high voice. Not quite Jimmy Scott, but he had a pretty high voice. Okay. The second song, I don't know. I know I probably should know it, but I don't. This one's a lot tougher. I could have gone for something a lot easier. And I should have. I just thought maybe you would get this because you were familiar with the song when we were doing the ska. It is Don Drummond with the song Don Cosmic. Okay. There we go. The third one, I initially thought it was Daniel Johnston. I think on my second listen to, I don't think it is him. So I don't know. I don't know who it is either. It's actually Phil Spector singing a song called I Can Hear Music. Interesting. Interesting. That's good for the theme because I have a guess on my theme and that works for me. All right. The fourth one I think is Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett. Correct. All right. And then the next one I think is Midnight Special by Leadbelly. Yes. Okay. And the last one is... My Way by Sid Vicious. Correct. What is the theme? We have Little Willie John, Fever, Don Drummond, Don Cosmic, Phil Spector with I Can Hear Music, Wilson Pickett with In the Midnight Hour, Lead Belly with Midnight Special, and Sid Vicious with My Way. Okay. I think Phil Spector kind of sealed the deal for me. But based on the last two, and I feel like faintly I know something about Wilson Pickett, I feel like these are all songs by people who have killed other people. That's it. Probably. Or suspected of being killed other people. Yep. These are people who caused the death of others. They were incarcerated other than Sid Vicious, who would have been (laughs) people who were incarcerated for manslaughter or murder. What's the Wilson Pickett story? Is he, did he have like a manslaughter with vehicle So in 1992, Pickett struck an 86-year-old pedestrian with his car in Inglewood. gosh. And the police allegedly found six empty bottles of, or miniature bottles of vodka, and six empty beer cans in his car. And Pickett pleaded guilty to drunk driving, and he went to rehab and received a reduced sentence of one year in jail and five years probation for killing someone... Wow. Anyway. That's awesome, I guess. Yeah, pretty great. (laughs) One year? That's crazy. But he had probation for five years, so uh, never mind. (laughs) What about little, uh, was it Willie John? or Little Willie John. So the story is that he killed somebody backstage and then went to prison for it. There is reason to believe that it was actually self-defense, but he did kill someone. He served time for it. Okay, we all know about Phil Spector and Lead Belly, Sid Vicious. And then Don Drummond. Don Drummond, do you remember he killed his girlfriend? Yes. We talked yeah. about that in the episode quite a bit. I actually thought if you got the theme, you would get the Don Drummond. I probably should have back. Yeah. I, to be honest with you, I didn't even think about going back after because I just got the theme. So I didn't even think about going back for that. I should have. I could have probably figured that out. 
I was too busy trying to figure out who Phil who Phil Spector was. <laughs> Why don't you put the screw on there? I would have got that, that one. That was the one I was going for, and then I found this one. I thought, this is pretty nice. I like it. <laughs> I was going to put Manson on here, but he didn't actually kill. He just suggested the killings, <laughs> so that doesn't count. Well, <laughs> fun theme, Joe. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I'm having a great day being quarantined with a family. <laughs> and the best thing about my way is that it's it was the dead giveaway because when you sing it, it makes you want to kill people. <laughs> that, according to Japanese karaoke, is that the one? Yes, that's right. Okay, that's right. Very so, good. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and put this thing to bed. First, I want to thank our podcast network, Pantheon Podcast. That's uh, the home of lots of. Great music podcast, um, lots of cool, different shows. I was listening to one the other day. It was Who Cares About the Rock Hall, which is a show about Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And One of the hosts really loves, knows everything about it. The other one's a little bit more skeptical. But then what they've been doing is they've been going through the years of, say, like, this is the year of 2014, and he's been playing songs from the bands inducted in 2014 that have to do with quarantine. So it's kind of fun, you know, good to hear some new music. I've enjoyed that, so that's one you can check out. There's lots of different great shows, and I keep adding them. So thank you to Pantheon, and we would encourage you to check out some of the other great shows there. And as always, we want to encourage you to go out and support record stores. I... um did something today where I just uh, sent a message by Instagram to one of the record stores and we talked for a minute and now they're sending me out a record. They just said, PayPal me and I'll send it out. So it was great. And that way I can support a local record store or semi-local, I guess, and uh, get some good music. And, you know, it's, it's a rough time. We've talked about it a lot, but we want to make sure that we're still doing whatever we can to support musicians and record stores. Are you willing to divulge the record you got? Yep. I've had my eye on this for a while, and I got um, Suvlaki by Slow Dive. Oh, good. Which is a record I've good wanted record. for a long time. They posted that they had a copy, and I just messaged and said, hey, would you ship it? And he said, oh, I love that record. I would absolutely ship it. And we just hooked up that way. Wonderful. And contact us. Or follow us on social media. We are on the Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can find us on Facebook, or you can just email us. Our email address is podcast at gmail.com. We've been getting a lot more emails and stuff like that. Yeah, we love it. Talk to us, please. Yeah, it makes it so fun. We really appreciate it when you email and touch, touch base, or I've had... um couple people ask me questions or stuff like that and and it's awesome like you know we've had everybody has been so nice it's incredible yeah yeah and they just you know they love music like us so it you know it's easy to talk about different stuff so i don't know i guess i could mention names on air but i don't know if they want me to so we've just had a lot of great fun people and and, and know that we appreciate it and let us know what you think or what we could do better or other ideas or whatever we just want to interact and just thank you for listening that's really wonderful we appreciate it yeah it's kind of mind-blowing that you know we've done this for what three years now three or four years and 
Uh, we're certainly not a a big podcast, and we're never going to be. However, it's starting to feel like there's at least a small core of people who listen to us really regularly, and it just means the world to us. Um, and that's that's fantastic, and we just appreciate it. Well, thanks again, and we will see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.